all through the Gospel of Mark, we see the love of God for us in Christ displayed. And so uh, this morning we're going to return to our study through Mark's Gospel, and we'll be in Mark uh, chapter 7, uh, verses 24 and uh, 30. Uh, one of the great needs of our day is, uh, is Jesus, obviously, and studying through the Gospel of Mark has been such uh, a tremendous blessing to my life, and I, th- I hope and pray it is to yours as well. So let's stand for the reading of uh, God's Word, Mark chapter 7, verses 24 and 30, picking up where we left off a few weeks ago. And from there he, this Jesus, arose and went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon, and he entered a house and did not want anyone to know yet he could not remain hidden. But immediately a woman whose little daughter was possessed by an unclean spirit heard of him and came and fell down at his feet. Now the woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth, and she begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. And he said to her, let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. But she answered him, yes, Lord, yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. And he said to her, for this statement, you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. And she went home and found the child lying in bed and the demon gone. Pray together. Father, thank you for scripture. Thank you for uh, this scene that we have. Uh, I pray that uh, we see in it what you want us to see in it. And the point of the passage is the point we make in our study. I thank you for Jesus. And I thank you that uh, we can see here how it is that we can have a place at your table. Uh, So may that be uh, what we see clearly from this passage in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I think uh, the Gospel of Mark is uh, the first gospel as a young believer in the Lord that I read all the way through from uh, start to finish. I can remember being about 11 or 12 years old and uh, sitting in my room and, and, and reading through the Gospel of Mark. And I can remember getting to this passage and being a little bit confused, a little bit perplexed, because it seems, doesn't it, that, that Jesus is, uh, is kind of rude to this, to this woman. It seems almost as if he's mean to her, and, and I can remember that being really confusing because it doesn't seem to keep in step with everything else that we see of Jesus as he heals and as he loves and as he feeds the 5,000, as he walks on the water, and then here he is having this sort of, it seems like, testy conversation with this, uh, with this Syrophoenician Woman, And so we want to think through and walk through the passage uh, together. And uh, as is usually the case, I have three uh, points, but uh, they're such important points to make uh, from, the, from the passage. You know, there have been a few times uh, in my life that I've received a voicemail from Julie that as soon as I began to listen to the voicemail, I could tell by the tone of her voice that something uh, important was happening. This has happened a few times, and... Uh, 
I, I, I remember in particular one time I was at the YMCA and had uh, exercised for a little bit and, and then got in the truck and, and saw that I had like a dozen missed calls from my wife. And so that immediately uh, set the alarm bells going and then listening to the voicemail and the first syllable out of her mouth, I could tell something was wrong. And then another time uh, remembering uh, kind of a similar situation, getting a phone call. Uh, it was actually on a Sunday, Sunday morning, and, and kind of church was, was going on. And I was like, this is a little bit strange for uh, her to be calling me right after a service has ended. And uh, uh, it was her again in her voice. I could, I could tell immediately. And she was saying she's at the hospital with our youngest daughter, Juliana, who has uh, severe allergy to tree nuts. And it was that morning we realized that because she had the reaction, right? And uh, when you're a parent and something is going on with your child, everything gets put on hold, right? And that's what we have happening in this scene. We have an occasion where a mom is desperate. And the reason that she's desperate is that her child is having significant problems. You know, it's been said that a mom can never be happier than her unhappiest child. My own mom is the kindest person I know, but I have seen with my own eyes her transform from meek, mild mama to mama bear. Do you know what I mean? When one of her cubs was threatened, I can remember a few occasions when I was a child seeing her go from humble, kind mom to aggressive avenger ready to take on the world, you know, in defense of her child. And we have in this passage a mom who won't back down, who won't be swayed, who won't give up. We also have here the person, and we've been studying through the Gospel of Mark together, who displays deeper theological insight than just about anyone else in all the gospel of Mark. Did you know she's the only person in the entire gospel of Mark who understands a parable of Jesus the moment she hears it? She's the only person in the entire gospel of Mark who refers to Jesus as Lord. And throughout the gospel of accounts, Uh, If you read Matthew and Mark and Luke and John, a recurring theme is that those who are seemingly most unlikely to understand God are the most eager to come to Jesus. Remember, it's the sinners and tax collectors who draw near to him while the Pharisees and the scribes are complaining about him. So I want to say very clearly to everyone who is listening to uh, this teaching of God's word. Jesus never rejects those who humbly pursue him. So as we study through the Gospel of Mark today, let's remember for a moment where we left off. Immediately preceding this passage, uh, Jesus has taught something extremely important. You might recall that uh, he has an extended teaching. In fact, it's one of his longer extended teachings in the Gospel of Mark, where he says that it's not what's outside of us that defiles us, it's actually what's 
inside of us. We're defiled by what goes on inside of us. The biggest problem we have is not out there. It's actually in here. Uh, Al Mohler puts it this way. We think we have an external problem with an internal solution, but what we really have is an internal problem with an external solution. You know, in that time and place, the Pharisees in particular were so quick to label other people defiled on the basis of their outward appearance. And in particular, there's sort of two groups of people the Pharisees were quick to label defiled. One was the Gentiles, and the other was anybody that had sort of a, a, a physical difficulty, uh, blindness or muteness or, or deafness. You, you might remember the Pharisees are up in arms when uh, Jesus heals a blind man, and, and they, uh, in a very accusatory fashion, said, who sinned? You know, was it this man or his parents? that he was born blind. So it's important as we, as we study through the Gospel of Mark. After Jesus has this teaching on what really defiles a person, look at the next two scenes. The first is this one, where he has this interaction with a Gentile, and then look at what the next one is. We'll study this, Lord willing, uh, in our next service. It's a man who's deaf. And so what we have going on here is, is Jesus isn't one to just teach ideas. He's, he's one in action and in service he demonstrates that he really lives out what he believes. So let's start with this, this first point uh, in this passage. Have three, and we'll start here. First, parents can have an unmatched care and concern for their children. Parents can have an unmatched care and concern for their children. Children. Now, on Wednesday nights, we've been studying the life of a king named Hezekiah. We know from Hezekiah that his dad was very wicked and his son was very wicked. So we want to have the whole uh, counsel of God, so to speak. And, that, and it means this, that godly parents do not guarantee godly children. And the reverse is also true. Parents who have no interest in Jesus may have children who love Christ with all their hearts. But what I think we can see from this passage is that parents of genuine and humble faith can be used mightily in the lives of their children. So we're talking about parents, but I want to expand the scope of that a little bit because this is uh, uh, near and dear in my own life and heart and that I've had many what I might call uh, spiritual parents, uh, spiritual moms, spiritual dads, or spiritual uncles and aunts and so on and and uh, so forth. God has used so many um, godly people in my life that were not my biological parents, though God certainly used them, but I can remember so many people, particularly when I was young, who in the life of our church came alongside of me, prayed for me, loved me, and so this is a call, yes, to parents, but to the church family, that it is so important, oh, put it this way, uh, I a significant priority among us are children. Matthew uh, gives us a little bit more information, so just listen to his account of this same scene, where he says, Behold, a Canaanite woman from that region came out and was crying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. But Jesus did not answer her a word, and his disciples came and begged him, saying, Send her away. For she's crying out after us. But she came and fell on her knees 
before Jesus? Here's a little bit of a, a Bible pop quiz question as we've been studying through uh, the Gospel of Mark. Can you name anyone else who fell on their knees before Jesus? Well, let's turn back for just a moment to Mark chapter 5, and verse 21. It says, When Jesus had crossed again to the boat, in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him, and he was beside the sea. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come, lay your hands on her, that she may be well and live. And he went with him. So a Syrophoenician woman, a Gentile woman, a ruler of the synagogue. Well, in that time and place, in that setting, these two people are polar opposites from a certain perspective. But you can see, can't you, what they have in common is their daughters are in trouble. And they're both desperate, and they both have nowhere to go but Jesus. The parents, the parents have unmatched care and concern for their children. Now, there was an idea that I had that I sort of wanted to perhaps schedule this passage for Mother's Day. I thought that would work well to see this praying, desperate mom on Mother's Day. But this might actually work better that we're doing it the Sunday before. So you have time to remember, and if it's possible, prepare. If you have a godly, praying mom to prepare to thank her because you have, if that's the case, been blessed with one of the mightiest gifts a person can have. I encourage you children, and in particular, I want to encourage you teenagers to take a moment and take a step back, because I was there as a teenager, and I know how the teenager-parent relationship can be, but just take a moment and see this is, this is often true, that it's your parents' who have unmatched care and concern for you. They're going to be there for you when no one else is. But I also want us to see something very important. In fact, it's it's really quite sober if we'll pause to think about it from this passage. So every parent, uh, every aunt, every uncle, every grandparent, every devoted member of the body of Christ, I want you to look at Mark 7 and verse 25. Immediately, a woman whose little daughter was possessed by an unclean spirit heard of him and came and fell down before him. Let this be an alarm for all of us that demonic influence can be at work in the lives of little children. The enemy, the spiritual forces of wickedness, do not look upon little ones and say, well, off limits. That's how wicked they are. So this needs to be a a really significant, I would just call it a call to action (laughs) in the life of our church, that demonic forces of influence target 
little children. So your primary care and concern needs to be the spiritual well-being of your child, your niece, your nephew, your, your grandchild. Now, it may not be that demonic influence leaves your child <laughs> writhing uncontrollably in the bed. Often the spiritual forces of wickedness are more subtle than that. It may be that the spiritual forces of wickedness will just target your child in such a way that it leaves them simply with no appetite, no desire, no interest in Jesus. The scripture tells us that that's the point of this or the goal of the spiritual forces of wickedness to blind the unbelievers from seeing the glory of the gospel. So if you uh, are just a few practical helps, I think uh, if you have a child in your home, a worthwhile goal is that they never go through a day without hearing you pray for them and start when they're little. Start when they're little. Hey, if the spiritual forces of wickedness begin when children are little, certainly, certainly the kingdom of God should be on the front lines as well. I think back when I was about 12 years old or so, and and my family was uh, in a really hard season, my dad gathered us all in the dining room to pray. He had never done this in our lives. In fact, it's the only time he ever did this. And he gathered us up, put us in a circle, and he said, I want everybody to hold hands. And this is the only time this happened in my life. My dad, weeping, prayed. And I was 12 years old, and I found in that moment that to be incredibly awkward. I found it almost to be uncomfortable. I didn't know what was going on. But now this many years later, it's one of the most precious memories I have of my dad. So a call to us all. Don't be so fearful of it being awkward that you end up prayerless. So if you have a child in your home, one simple goal would be not a legalistic, but a precious opportunity to pray with your child. Hey, um, None of us, none of us have been or are doing these things perfectly. One of the um, best things you can do, uh, or, or often the best things we do for a child, are not appreciated by the child in the moment. Loving children, praying for children, teaching children is sort of a long term investment. I've learned this as a parent, that often children will be really happy in a moment about something that will prove unhelpful in the long term and disappointed in the moment over what they will only appreciate much later. Sometimes as a dad, I'll say no to something, and in that moment, they'll be so disappointed. And I have to know they'll not appreciate dad's no until later. So again, one of the most important things we do as a church family is love, pray for, and serve little children. Second point uh, I want to make from this passage is there is great potential and power in intercessory prayer. There is great potential and power in intercessory prayer. Now what is intercessory prayer? Intercessory prayer is praying on behalf of someone who either 
is not, will not, or cannot pray for themselves. So you intercede on their behalf. This child, I'm sorry, this woman has a child dealing with a problem that's beyond the scope of her ability to help. And that's what's often so frustrating, isn't it, as a parent or as uh, someone who, who simply loves somebody else. Is something needs to happen that we in and of ourselves are unable to make happen. And that's why we pray. We cannot give our child a new heart. We cannot make our child love Jesus. We cannot make our child find joy and satisfaction in Christ, but we can pray. We can ask God to bring that about. I love how uh, this woman perseveres in prayer. You can see that, can't you? She won't stop. She won't back down. She won't give up. She won't throw in the towel. This is a great example of intercessory prayer that perseveres. So uh, an encouragement to anybody who's watching this and you feel discouraged. You say, I love someone tremendously, but, but uh, they're in a place in life that's so dark and so difficult. Well, don't quit going to Jesus on their behalf. Don't stop going to Jesus on their behalf. There's great power and great potential in intercessory prayer. Now, I do have a third point to make from the passage, and in many ways, I think it's the most important point from the passage. In some ways, it's one of the most important points from the Gospel of Mark, and yes, I do think it's true. We could say it's one of the most significant points from all the Bible. It's something that's consistently taught throughout the scripture. But before I make the point, I want to give a few details. In Mark 7, verse 24, we're told that Jesus arose and went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon. So he'd been uh, having this public ministry for a little while, and with his disciples, he wants to withdraw. And so they go away from all the pressing of the crowds, and they go to a, sort of a quieter place, but it's a city called uh, Tyre. Tyre's in modern-day Lebanon, and it was not a place in that time that Jewish people were fond of in the least. Uh, in fact, the Jewish historian uh, Josephus said of Tyre, it was notoriously our bitterest enemy. Tyre had aligned with uh, the Seleucids against the Jewish people during the Maccabean Revolt. Now, uh, uh, we won't go into all the details of that. That, that had happened uh, in the not-too-distant past, uh, before Jesus and the disciples walk in. I mean, a few generations had gone by, but you might be able to think of it in this way, that the, that the wounds are still sort of a present. Tyre was where Jezebel was from. So all that to say that Tyre was not a city that was a place that the Jewish people had much affection for. You can hear it in the disciples, right? In Matthew's account, they began to tell Jesus, in fact, the verb is they began to beg Jesus, would you tell her to go away? And she knows as she approaches this Jewish rabbi from her certain perspective that according to sort of the standards of the day, she's unclean. She's disqualified from approaching him. But she goes anyway. I like what Tim Keller writes 
uh, about this scene. He, he writes, you know why she has such a burst of boldness, don't you? Now there are cowards and regular people, and then there are heroes in the world, and then there are parents. Parents are not really on the spectrum from cowardice to courage, because if your child is in jeopardy, you simply do whatever it takes to save her. It doesn't matter if you're normally timid or brazen. Your personality is irrelevant. You don't think twice. You do what it takes. So it's not all that surprising that this desperate mother is willing to push past all the barriers. But when she does push past the barriers initially, it seems like Jesus is, well, let's just read it. It says in verse 26, Now the woman was a Gentile, a Seraphonician by birth. She begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. And he said to her, Let the children be fed first, for it's not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Now initially it seems like Jesus is, well, less than kind to her, doesn't it? He responds to her request with, a, with this parable. And he uses the word dog here in uh, verse 27 that will refer to sort of a household uh, pet. Now I've got all the dog's attention who've been watching the streaming. He's saying that when the family sits down at the table, it's the children who get a place, not the pets. Right, Sadie, at our house? And she responds by saying, well, yeah, that's true. Well, look what she says. She answered, yes, Lord, yet, yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. She listens to what he says, and then she responds in an amazing way. And this is so important because this is the key to the kingdom of God. This is the doorway into the kingdom of God of God. Instead of standing there and demanding her rights and telling Jesus what she's owed, she humbles herself before him and says she has no rights to stand before him. Instead, she pleads and asks for grace. She's essentially saying, you're right, I don't deserve a place at the table, but I believe there's more enough on the table to spill over for me. I love the way that Tim Keller puts it in his book. He says, instead of asserting her rights, she approaches with rightless assertiveness. In other words, she's saying, I'm not making a demand of you, Jesus, on the basis of my goodness, but in humility, I'm coming and making a request of you on the basis of your goodness. You have more to provide. You fill the table up, and I don't deserve a place, but I believe you provide enough that I can have what I need. I want to read from uh, James Edwards in his comment on the Gospel of Mark, not our at Calvary Baptist James Edwards, though we love him dearly, but James Edwards, uh, the one who wrote a book on the Gospel of Mark. James Edwards says, she appears to understand the purpose of Israel's Messiah better than Israel does. 
Her pluck and her persistence are a testimony of her trust in the sufficiency and the surplus of Jesus. Now, his provision for the disciples in Israel will be abundant enough to provide for one such as herself. What an irony. Jesus seeks desperately to teach his chosen disciples, yet they are dull and uncomprehending. She is the first person in Mark to hear and understand a parable of Jesus. I just love her faith, don't you? And certainly Jesus does. We see that in how he responds. Again, her saying, I don't deserve to be at the table with you, Jesus, but I believe there's enough on the table for you to provide for me and my daughter too. She's anticipating while we were still weak at just the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. God shows his love for us in while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. For if while we were his enemies, God reconciled us to, the, to, to himself by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, now that Christ has provided a place for us at the table, shall we be saved from the wrath that is to come. Now again, getting the full context of these passages that we've been studying through the Gospel of Mark, Jesus has said it's not what's on the outward appearance that defiles you. The Pharisees were experts in categorizing people. And it's not just the Pharisees. Can we just be honest for a moment? It's sinful humanity that all through history categorizes and labels people and says you're defiled because you are this. But Jesus says it's what, defi- what defiles you is from the inside. And whether you're the ruler of the synagogue, Jairus, or you're the Syrophoenician woman, what defiles you is on the inside of you, and you could only be made well by Christ and his provision at his table. You see, throughout the Gospel of Mark, we've seen that Jesus is harshly criticized by the religious leaders. He's rejected in his own hometown. His family doubts him. He's followed by some for all the wrong reasons. He's only sought and trusted by the desperate. I love to think of uh, this mom returning home, walking in, and seeing what we have here. She went home and found the child lying in bed and the demon gone. So here's the third point, and it is such an important point from the scriptures. Believing you do not deserve a place at the Lord's table is the first step to having a place at the Lord's table. Believing you do not deserve a place at the Lord's table is the first step to having a place at the Lord's table. The only ones who will be at the Lord's table are those who know they don't deserve to be there at all. God's goodness and God's power work for those who are convinced they do not deserve his grace, but who believe he's good enough 
to giving. Those who believe, so let's take our three points and uh, let them direct us to Jesus. Those who believe that in spite of my deep sinfulness, I do have a father who has unmatched care and concern for me. Those who believe that I have one who has interceded for me. And though I do not deserve a place at the table, he has provided a place for me. And at the cross, he disarmed the spiritual forces of wickedness so that very soon, very soon, I will be at home and at rest with him eternally. That's what this passage teaches us about the Lord Jesus Christ. That entrance into the kingdom of God is for the humble. Entrance into the kingdom of God is for those who know they don't deserve, don't merit, haven't earned a place in the kingdom. Those who believe it's by grace we are saved through faith. It's the gift of God, not a result of works, so that we do not boast. Those who believe that God shows his love for us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Those who do not go to God demanding what they are owed, but are grateful that because of Jesus, we will not receive what we're actually owed, but because of grace, we have received what we could never have earned on our own. So may Jesus be trusted. May Jesus be exalted. May Jesus be magnified. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for Christ. Thank you for your care and concern for us. Oh, this desperate mom, but a small picture of your care and concern for your children. Uh, Thank you that Christ has interceded on our behalf. When we could not, would not seek you, he sought us on behalf of us, interceded for us at the cross. Thank you that there is a place, there is a place at your table, but not because we've deserved one, but one has been given to us because of Jesus, because of grace. We ask this and pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.